This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Last week, Spanish bank Banco Santander announced plans to use the recent strong financial performance of its Mexican unit as leverage to raise $4.3 billion in a stock offering, the largest ever in Mexico's history. Part of a longer-term expansion plan in Latin America, the move is also designed to signal financial markets that the bank has high growth potential outside of its troubled home markets in Spain and the Eurozone. Wharton Management Professor Mauro Guillen and Adrian Schergel, a Wharton Management lecturer, discuss how the deal fits in with Santander's master plan. The professors are authors of a book titled Building a Global Bank, The Transformation of Banco Santander. We're speaking today with Wharton Management Professor Mauro Guillen and Adrian Chargo, a Wharton lecturer about Banco Santander, which has put out an offer for 25% of the stock of its Mexican subsidiary, a deal that's valued at about $4.3 billion. The professors are authors of a book called Building a Global Bank, The Transformation of Banco Santander, so they're in a good position to talk about this bank. Uh, this is the largest stock offering ever in Mexico. Would you comment on just how significant this is for Banco Santer and also for Mexico itself? Mauro, maybe we'll start with you. Well, this is uh, one uh, additional step in terms of uh, fully utilizing their capital base. Um, so they have uh, either plans or they have already floated parts of their equity in their Brazilian subsidiary in the UK. And uh, now in Mexico, those are the three most important markets right now in which uh, they have a presence outside of the home country of, uh, of Spain. Uh, so this is essentially part of a you know, long-standing policy to try to uh, you know, fully utilize their capital base. And uh, I mean, let's remember that uh, there's other banks that have done this, and there's uh, a lot of uh, companies, especially for emerging markets, that have um, essentially used um, you know, uh, partners in uh, local markets and floated part of the stock as a way to you know, uh, leverage their you know, resources uh, more broadly and be able to accomplish more in a shorter period of time. Um, uh, so this is a, uh, you know, it's a smart move, uh, but it is a uh, part of a long-standing strategy for, uh, on, the, on the part of the bank. Does it say uh, more for Mexico, perhaps, than, than it does for Banco Santer at this moment? Well, keep in mind, well, if they were going to float anything, Mexico is the one to float because of the, the major uh, markets they're in, it's the Mexican operations doing best. Uh, last year, it accounted for about 10% uh, of uh, Santander's global uh, profits, which is just a little bit under Spain. Uh, but it's the growing, it's the one where the profits are growing versus Brazil's a little off, Spain is a little off. So in terms of what's easiest to sell, it's going to be the Mexican operation. Now, keep in mind, this 24.9%, they actually sold that, uh, that amount back around 2006 to Bank of America. Then about two years ago, uh, Bank of America sold it back to them. So in effect, all they're really doing is putting the same 24.9% back, back into play, in a way. Uh, as Mauro said, it's part of um, a long-standing plan. It's a little, right now, part of the motivation is, A, they just made the 9% capital base. Uh, that the European uh, 
banking authority wanted. They want to get to 10%. So this will be, will, they'll use the proceeds to up their capital base. Second, at a time when Spain is, let's say, a little bit in the doghouse globally, there's a problem of valuing Santander. If they can get market valuations for the main components, that puts a flaw under the valuation of the whole corporation. So, uh, in other words, if you, if you sort of add up Brazil and Mexico and the UK and some other bits and pieces, then the total thing has to be worth at least that, plus at least a little bit for Spain. That's interesting. It sort of plays into an, another question I was thinking about, which is that here you are in Europe, all the banks are having trouble raising money. All the banks are being asked to raise money under Basel III yeah. and other new regulations that they've got to beef up the reserves. So they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. And of course, the economies are tanking. But here's Santander, uh, at least outside of Europe, uh, able to, to raise money. But also, they had a successful bond offering um, just, uh, I think it was a month ago, uh, of about 2 billion euros, which, which did pretty well, especially considering what some of the sovereign bonds, <laughs> how they were tanking at the time. So there, I mean, that, that, that's another sign that, that, that the market's viewing Banco Santander differently than some other banks in Europe, is it, would you well, say? Well, it is a very um, unique bank. I mean, there's very few banks in the world yeah. that have a, uh, a franchise, uh, you know, that have operations in the retail market in so many different uh, countries. You know, HSBC perhaps is the, uh, you know, everybody's, uh, you know, favorite example when it comes to yeah. uh, global retail banks. Uh, but after HSBC, maybe there's a couple more, and Santander is, you know, up there among the top five banks in terms of uh, having operations in multiple markets. And of course, the European crisis, and in particular the problems in Spain, uh, have uh, resulted in a situation in which the stock of uh, Spanish banks is, uh, or some Spanish banks at least, is uh, undervalued, right? Um, because again, it, uh, that stock is being heavily penalized by the fact that. Uh, in Spain. They are associated with, uh, with a market that is now in trouble. Uh, but, you know, Santander generates more than half of its profits and has more than half of its assets outside of the home country, right? Way more than half of their, of their profits. Yeah. And so uh, uh, the markets are not seen through that. So this kind of a flotation in Mexico helps clarify, as Adrian was mentioning, that, you know, there's a minimum that this bank is worth. And no matter how... Um, skittish investors are about Spain or about the Eurozone. Uh, this is a bank that has major operations outside of the Eurozone, so they shouldn't be penalizing the stock as much. So the benefit to the brand in the market is uh, maybe even greater than, than the proceeds from, from the stock. If, if it draws attention to the fact that in Santander is about 50-50 mature markets, emerging markets, within the mature markets, look, in total I'd say Spain is a probably last year's profits, under 30%. Um, so if it draws attention to the fact that Santander is really a world play, not a Spain play, that can only help in terms of perception of the bank. Now, if addition, additionally they use the, the, these funds, and they're gathering some other funds. You mentioned the bond offering. They've just decided to sell, they've just sold their... Uh, uh, Colombian operation. They decided it wasn't growing to where they wanted it to be, 10% market share or better. So they sold that. That's going into capital. If they now have a better capital ratio than is mandated, one of the best capital ratios in Europe, that too pulls them out of the 
out of the, the league of troubled entities. In general, how has the European financial crisis affected Santander? We've talked about it a little bit, but maybe we could elaborate. And, and how will it affect it in the future? It's affecting its strategies, as, as we just heard. But well, certainly. I mean, for starters, the uh, the price of the uh, the stock is uh, you know at the historical you know lows. Obviously, uh, it has hit earnings, right? Because even though Spain is far less than half, it still is an important uh, market for them. Uh, and other than that, in the eurozone itself, uh, they have uh, um, you know consumer finance operations throughout Europe, uh, Western and Northern Europe, and a little bit in Eastern Europe. Um, they uh, uh, these, these operations, of course, have suffered because, of course, uh, consumption and uh, consumer credit has, uh, you know, decreased as a result of the uh, recession and the crisis. Uh, so they are being hit both as a bank and uh, as a market, you know, uh, player in the sense that, uh, you know, whatever happens with uh, aggregate demand also affects them, right, if the economy doesn't go well. Uh, but other than that, as Adrian was mentioning, then they, they have a presence, very strong presence, in other uh, developed or mature markets that are not Eurozone, so that's the UK and the US primarily, right? Well, and Brazil. And, and then they have emerging markets, yeah. right? They have Sorry. emerging markets such as Mexico or Brazil and a couple of others uh, of importance in Latin America. Um, so they are well positioned, uh, you know, in terms of the, the portfolio of businesses in different uh, currency areas and different types of markets to weather a storm such as this, as long as, of course, not all economies you know, uh, go south at the same time. Well, I was going to ask about that. You mentioned Brazil, and of course, Brazil's economy has been contracting of late. Um, they've got a lot of loans out there. There's been talk about possibility of some, you know, bad loans uh, coming out of the woodwork there. Um, any possibility that those bad loans could be large enough to, you know, give them a big dent, or, or is this is something that Not would be considered manageable? Probable. Yeah. I mean, look, you can always be surprised. <laughs> UBS is currently, uh, the, the trader who cost UBS 2.5 billion in bad trading just went on trial today, I think, in London. You can always be surprised. But in Brazil, Santander had a uh, okay-ish bank, which, and then with the, when the bid for, or when they took part in the breakup of ABN AMRO, they got one of the crown jewels, which was the Brazilian operation, which was very well run. And the president of the Brazilian, or the CEO of the Brazilian operation, is very highly respected. He ran a good bank, ABN, it was ABN uh, Amro Real. Um, he's now in charge of the total thing and, and still trying to put the various pieces together. But you have, a, a, you have essentially a good and, and a very good operation being put together. So it's not likely that you're going to have some major uh, surprise there. And even in Spain, uh, thinking about it, they've, they've been, they're, they're pretty good on risk control. They're a bit below average for their market share in their exposure to the real estate sector, in particular to uh, residential mortgages. So they've been cautious there too. So I'm not, again, always be surprised, but I wouldn't expect anything there. Uh, does the uh, Mexican issue, because it's the largest in Mexican history and so forth, does it, uh, I mean, it's, it's part of a pattern where there's more and more successful IPOs. I realize this isn't an IPO, but it's, it has some parallels to an IPO. But more and more 
IPOs and big IPOs coming out of emerging markets. We've seen it in Malaysia now, yeah. well, and I, I, even I think, Indonesia. I think one needs to put in perspective the, the fact, which is of course a fact that this is the largest IPO in Mexican history uh, for two reasons. The first reason is that Mexico stands out as a market in which there's been very few privatizations, right? Uh, so we've only really had one big privatization, which was the uh, telephone company, and that's now controlled by, by Carlos Slim, right? I mean, the, the company that came out of that. That was many years ago, right? Uh, but Mexico hasn't uh, really privatized anything else. You see, when you go to uh, a lot of countries in Latin America, where you go to uh, even countries in, in continental Europe, like France or Spain, the biggest IPOs have always been state-owned companies that went public, right? But Mexico, you know, because of limitations in terms of how much the state can, can privatize, uh, written into the Constitution, um, you know, they haven't privatized the old company, for instance, right? Uh, so has had very, very small IPOs. That's the first reason. The second reason is that uh, the, in Mexico there are large firms, but most of them are controlled by families, and not all of them are listed. And if they're listed, they're listed they're listing very small percentages, right? So I'm here I'm talking about Cemex, I'm talking about Bimbo, I'm talking about uh, Vitro, I'm talking about, uh, you know, uh, Modelo, all of these large uh, Mexican firms, most of them with a global presence, right? In cement, in, in beer, uh, in um, uh, bread, uh, you know, baking, baking, and so on and so forth. Um, so, so uh, you know, it looks big in Mexico, but uh, it is in part because it is a big flotation. But uh, even more importantly, it looks big because uh, up until now, not that much has been going on in Mexico, right? Because of these two reasons, uh, limited privatizations and very strong presence of uh, family ownership in the largest firms. So a bit of a special case there. Mexico is a special case in many respects, uh, you know, in many respects. Uh, the other reason, of course, is that it's so close to the United States. <laughs> and in general, uh, would you, after having literally written the book on Santander, would you comment on how their global strategy is going. Uh, you, you talk about it in your book. You made some predictions there, some of which turned out quite nicely. Um, well, the big one is still open. Let's talk about that. And the big one is the, is the succession, mm -hmm. uh, when uh, Boutin steps down. And I'd say that's still, what, clouded and shadowed in, in mystery, because the obvious heir apparent is his daughter, Ana Patricia, but that doesn't that's not, I wouldn't say it's a foregone, it's not a foregone conclusion at all. So uh, he's, he's been at the helm since what, 86, 87? And the bank has done well. Um, he took a okay, what, number six or number seven Spanish bank and made it one of the, la the largest bank in the uh, Eurozone. And so there's an issue. When will he step down? What, who will be a successor and what effect will that have on the bank? And that's just open. That's an open question. But in terms of global strategy, they've, you, you mentioned, I mean, Well, I think they've been following essentially their, the template. I mean, their template has been since they started to um, uh, internationalize in earnest in the 1980s. Uh, it has been to, um, uh, you know, grow by entering new markets, um, for the most part to continue focusing themselves on retail banking, commercial banking, and not, you know, branching out into other things. And uh, they've been entering a number of markets, more than 25, exiting some of those markets, Bolivia, more recently Colombia, um, you know, just responding to uh, circumstances. Uh, so they've been very, um, I think, pragmatic about, uh, you know, market entry and market exit. Um, 
they've uh, also tried to diversify by, as I mentioned earlier, by monetary area and in terms of the characteristics of the economy, mature markets, emerging markets, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think pretty much, you know, in my view, um, the decisions that they're making, that they've been making over the last, uh, you know, two years, let's say, you know, expanding the UK, uh, consolidate Brazil, uh, uh, expanding to Poland, expanding to Turkey, and so on and so forth. All of those decisions are really consistent with the last 20 years, right? So they are not shy about entering new markets, even when other banks were retrenching in the midst of the um, financial crisis. And they're not shy about exiting markets if they think that uh, they shouldn't be there, right? So they are, I think, uh, continuing to, uh, you know, uh, um, implement the principles that they established a um, couple of decades ago as to how they should go about growing internationally. Yeah, um, they don't have, they don't get uh, locked into a market in the sense that uh, developing a sentimental attachment. Try it out, if it works, if they can get the market share, and they do work by mostly by acquisition, if they can build up a good position, fine. If it's a dead end, they leave. Um, Colombia being the most uh, recent example of that. And then they've got sort of 10 priority markets that hasn't changed, uh, and a lot of small ones, and they'll see how those go. But it's, again, it's, it's the same, it's continuation of the same overall strategy of the last 20 plus years. It's sort of interesting because it sounds like they have a certain nimbleness that, that a, a lot of uh, bank analysts say banks need, but banks typically lack, so that might set them apart a little bit. What about Asia, which everyone talks about as being, for many, the future of, of banking, since it's seemed to be the strong growth area? How are they, they set up for that? They were in the Philippines. They did buy some stuff, and then they exited because they couldn't figure out how to make that work. They, have, they have clearly have an interest in China, but they can't figure out a way to do that. In particular, they can't find people that can bridge between China and Spain, where they have, where the where top management has a con has confidence in them, they do not. Have, I could be dead wrong on this, but I don't believe they've taken minority positions in any major Chinese uh, financial institutions or Asian market for that matter. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that you know, there's really only a you know two or three banks that uh, have historically had a presence in in strong presence in in maybe one or two at at, at most uh, three markets in Asia. I mean. These markets, I mean, let's say, you know, India, Thailand, Indonesia, you know, the Philippines, uh, South Korea, Japan, China, they're all very different. I mean, they happen to be in Asia, but, you know, they couldn't be more different from one another. They differ in terms of the uh, structure of competition, the regulations, whether there are strong local players or not, and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, it is uh, it's certainly a, something that they're watching. Uh, I think every European bank wants to keep on watching, you know, what's going on over there. But you see, we're talking here about a bank that wants to play in retail banking, opening branches and uh, running, you know, uh, taking deposits, extending loans. Maybe that's not a part of the world where, you know, they should be, you know, they're, they're, they're exploring, they're trying to see if it makes sense or not. Um, but, you know, they have a lot of, uh, you know, room to grow uh, in Latin America, in Europe. Uh, and uh, also here in the United States, we haven't even talked about the United States. In the United States, they have a major presence uh, in one uh, small part of the country, right, the Northeastern Corridor, uh, but that's about it. And this is a big market that is ripe for consolidation, right, because there's a lot of uh, small it's banks. Yeah. 
And uh, so they don't need to grow in China in order to keep on growing. And China perhaps is a difficult market. And you know, it seems as if uh, China is following Brazil right now in terms of um, you know, a uh, deterioration of macroeconomic indicators, especially growth. Um, so it's not clear to me that uh, China would be. And of course, India is very difficult. You have very sophisticated, entrenched local banks. Uh, and, I'd argue uh, they're sophisticated, but very entrenched but very banks. Entrenched. And, uh, so, so, you know, it's not clear why they would want, at least, let's say, in the next five or ten years, to allocate resources to that part of the world when they have growth opportunities in Europe, yeah. in Latin America, and in North America. Uh, one last question. You talked about growth opportunities in Europe. Um, a lot of bank analysts say Europe has too many banks. There's going to be a consolidation, maybe a major consolidation. Um, where does Banco Santander fit into that? Should that occur, as many see as likely? They've been sidestepping a little by focusing on consumer credit rather than banks. And so if you look at uh, the Scandies, or Germany, or so forth, they haven't really built up a banking presence. There's a bit of a, they've got a bit of a banking presence in Germany and so on, but it's been more of a consumer credit presence. Uh, they made one, f for many years, they, they targeted uh, Italy. They were interested in Italy. They finally got an Italian operation, again in the breakup of ABN AMRO, and within a month, they sold it to uh, Monterey Paschi di Siena. Mostly, again, this is the no... Um, psychological uh, attachment. Even though they'd been trying to get into Italy for a long time, Monte uh, De Paschi came up with an offer that was ridiculously high. So within a month, they turned, they they got rid of it. Uh, I think one problem with Europe is it's still a country of, it's still a continent of nations, and it's very hard for a foreign bank to make a major acquisition without there being a certain amount of concern. Uh, if you think again, think about ABN AMRO, when that finally fell apart, the, uh, the, Dutch, the Dutch nationalized the Dutch bit, the Belgians took over the Belgian bit, and only Banco Santander came out because they, they had none of those pieces. Yeah, I mean, Europe is, is complex, continental Europe. And uh, will there be consolidation? Well, I guess we, first we need to know what happens to the euro. Right. <laughs> and then next, uh, we need to know um, whether. Um, in the wake of uh, a potential reorganization of Europe's um, treasuries, right, or maybe in the form of uh, some fiscal union, uh, whether uh, then as a result of that, governments become less concerned about foreign takeovers of local banks. It is inconceivable, of course, that in the context of a uh, currency union uh, that you still have, uh, you know, in every of these, in each of these markets, uh, the, 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 the first, the second, and the third largest banks is a local bank, right? Yeah. So there's been no, uh, you know, incursions, no invasions, right, of one bank onto another one's turf, right, after 12 years of a, 13 years of a monetary union, right? This is really, really strange. Uh, so I think it depends on what happens to the euro. It depends on the kind of fiscal union. If the euro survives, it's obviously going to be with some kind of a uh, fiscal union. Yeah. So what shape is that going to take? Uh, uh, are governments then going to, uh, you know, essentially, you know, be more open uh, to takeovers in the financial sector? It is a politically sensitive sector. It is a strategic sector. It is, you know, a peculiar sector. That's why we love talking about banks, right? And uh, and in Europe, of course, many of these institutions, uh, 
are 100 years old and you know it's it's very difficult to move away from that right but even here in the united states i mean it's it's sometimes hard to um you know to see how you know there could be further consolidation where we all know that perhaps there should be more consolidation right so so the problems are you know uh pretty much in this sector you know present uh, around the world but europe is i think a very clear case right of uh, compartmentalization or fragmentation right in the face of you know a uh, you know a monetary union which is kind of weird for more business news and analysis from knowledge at wharton please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu